Welcome to Couch Buddies. I'm Kia. And I'm Michelle. And this, hopefully, fingers crossed, is our last, like, self, self-isolation self episode. Hopefully, by the time you're hearing this, like, quarantine is, like, over or will soon be over. Um, at the very least, yeah. this is our last book rec episode. At the, <laughs> yes, at the very least, this is the last episode of book recommendations we are going to do because we have reached the genre of miscellaneous <laughs> we, we have reached the genre of things that just didn't quite fit within you know romance or fantasy or things like that so um so yeah we're this is kind of a free for all like book recommendations so um i only have five um i don't have any like honorable mentions or anything like that so um I um, sort of have five and I sort of have seven. It just depends on how you look at it. Um. <laughs> oh, man. Well, uh, why don't you go ahead and get us started? All right. So my first one is one that I talked about the ser- TV series that it's based on. Uh, this is a series, a sci-fi series called The Expanse by James mm-hmm. S.A. Corey, which James S.A. Corey is a pen name. It's two guys. Uh, this will eventually be a nine novel series, but mm-hmm. they are the last one is due out this year. Yeah. Um. And I've only read through book five, uh, book five of all of them so far. Book five is my favorite. It's uh, oh man, it's just, it's such a good series. Like I talked about it before, but humanity has colonized the solar system, Mars, the moon, the asteroid belt and beyond. Uh, Jim Holden is an exo of an ice miner making runs from rings of Saturn. Uh, Detective Miller is looking for a girl and he's on the, uh, the asteroid belt. It's a, the first one's a mystery called Leviathan's wake. It's the very first one. It, it alternates between Holden and Miller's perspectives. Every book, uh, each each chapter is a is a first person limited mm-hmm. uh, point of view, which I love. I talked about Amos Burton when I was talking about the TV show. The book Amos is so much better than the show Amos, which is saying <laughs> something. Amos is, I mean, I don't like to use the word sociopath, but he actually doesn't have a moral compass. He relies on other people for his moral compass. Mm-hmm. Um, he ha- if he believes that you are a person who believes in doing the right thing, then he's probably going to work with you. <laughs> like he's going to want to help you, kind of thing. He's just he's such an interesting character. Uh, he has his own morals, I should say it that way. Uh, the fifth book, which is the one, like I said, I'm on right now. They're long books. They are big books. Mm-hmm. Uh, I and I'm going to tell you, get through the fourth one to get to the fifth <laughs> one. The fourth one is is slower. I like a lot of things in it, but it's a much slower book um because most of them take place over long periods of time because space is vast and Mm -hmm. the books never forget that the books like it'll take you months to get from one thing to another you know it takes i think it's 18 months in the fourth book for even the for them to even get to the planet they're trying to get to Mm -hmm. like it's it's huge spans spans of time that these people are are on ships together the fifth book what makes it so special is that it is the first time you are getting every like the there's always three or four characters that you're getting their first person limited or sorry third third person limited perspective it's third person not first person my apologies um in this book it is the first time you are getting the whole crew of the rosinante which is the main ship it is all their perspectives uh because they for the first time in the novels 
are apart. They are on different planets. They are in different places. It all over the place. One's on earth. One's on Mars. One's back on the ship that they came with. One is somewhere else entirely. Like, and it's the first time the four of them, the four main characters have been separated. And it is so fascinating to see in everybody's head. Like it's just so enjoyable and so fascinating and the, I mean, the books have titles like Tiamat's Wrath. I think that's like one of the last ones, one of the most recent ones. Um, but yeah, and it's, it is, it starts off kind of as a, mis- it's all mysterious. I will say that there's still like a big mystery that we don't know the answer to, but it is so much about like how people get along. Like even, even if all of a sudden we had a, what's the word, a plethora of things, what happens then to what's left behind and it's just it is there's like political stuff in it like we've like i've mentioned before um but it's also just about like these four people who have been caught in this microcosm of events and they want to do the right thing and not everybody agrees on what the right thing is which is always a great way to tell a story mm-hmm. you know because the thing with jim holden is jim holden doesn't know how to keep his mouth shut and I don't mean like he blabs. I mean, he believes, tell the truth, the whole truth, all the truth, all the time. Which, in a situation where aliens might be coming to kill you, might not always be the best policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I say tell the truth all the time, I mean, he throws out into the world, into the universe, like he does just like a wide band transmission, that Mars is the one who blew up the ship that he was on. Which would be a violation of treaties, which causes massive wars, which because he didn't, and it turns out they didn't do it. It was all, it was a plot. And if he had shut his mouth for like another 24 hours, he would have known that. So, so Holden is always this character who tells the truth and is all about the truth until he's kind of not. And then there has to be like some talk about that. Like, it's just so, I love the characters. They're so well developed and defined. Mm -hmm. And like, that's why you can do a good TV show is because the characters are good, but the story is so in depth. And like, like I'm on book five of nine and I have no idea what's coming next. I'm so excited to see what else is in this series, but that is my first one is the expanse series. Um, Like I said, I just, it's my first three, I'm going to be honest, are Mm sci-fi related uh, because I don't read a lot of sci-fi books, but when I do, I get into them. right so so yeah the expanse series by james s.a Corey. that is my first that is the only series nope not true it's gonna say the only series on my list not true but (laughs) but yeah i just i love the expanse by james s.a Corey. so uh mine is um i've got uh, three of my five i realized um there are movie adaptations of of three of the five ones on my list uh, the first one is Room by Emma Donahue. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read the synopsis um, just in case like you haven't seen the movie. Um, to five-year-old Jack, Room is the entire world. It is where he was born and grew up. It's where he lives with his ma as they learn and read and eat and sleep and play. At night, his ma shuts him safely in the wardrobe where he is meant to be asleep when old Nick visits. Room is home to Jack, but to Ma, it's the prison where old Nick has held her captive for seven years. 
Through determination, ingenuity, and fierce motherly love, Ma has created a life for Jack, but she knows it's not enough, not for her or for him. She devises a bold escape plan, one that relies on her young son's bravery and a lot of luck. But she does not realize just how unprepared she is for the plan to actually work. I watched the movie of Room probably about a year ago um, because I was real curious to see the movie that won Captain Marvel and Oscar. Um, <laughs> and uh, the movie like absolutely like completely gutted me. And, and it's kind of... Um, like, you know, I don't, like, I loved her, and like, I love her as Captain Marvel. I think, like, there's nobody be better. Um, but this is kind of the thing that made me absolutely fall, like, head over heels in love with Brie Larson. Um, and I think she is absolutely incredible. And, and it was the thing that kind of made me seek out other movies of hers. Um, and like I said, I, I think she's just absolutely incredible. The book, however is um you know because you can't do that with you can't do it with a movie um but the um the book is i mean the movie is an excellent adaptation but the book is told um entirely from jack's perspective and and so you have one the unique perspective you know a novel like told from the unique perspective of a five-year-old which would be unique anyway but then you have a novel told from the unique perspective of a five-year-old who has literally spent his entire life in a single room and knows nothing of the outside world aside from what he sees on television and what Ma tells him. But even then, he doesn't understand the concept between real and not real. And so it's kind of at that point that she realizes, like, we have got to get out of here. And, and they make a daring escape. And then... Um, you know, and then it's all about Jack trying to adjust to life in the real world. Um, and as I said, the movie is the movie is absolutely incredible, but the book even more so. Um, it's just I uh, like I don't know. Like it's it is a it's a it's kind of uh, it's tough, but it, like it is a stunning novel, and like I just I can't say enough good things about it like i it is such a fascinating book and i i think it's incredible uh so what is your next what is your next recommendation okay so my second one uh has a movie about it that came out fairly recently uh that we actually saw together it's ready player one by ernest klein wait what didn't you go see it with me i, I, I have not seen it was movie. my sister sorry <laughs> I, literally still... you, I was like there's a book i was like what did we go no no see sorry together? my sister saw this with me i apologize <laughs> uh yeah but no, ready okay. player one I did borrow your copy of the book and read that it. you returned it fairly recently if i'm not mistaken i i returned it not long after i read it shane borrowed it mm -hmm. returned it recently mm. it just got it back there. to my house that's the yeah the that, kicker that here was is not it just me. got back to my house um but it's ready player one by ernest klein in the year 2044 reality is an ugly place the only time teenager Wade Watts feels alive is when he's jacked into the virtual utopia known as the Oasis. Wade's devoted his life to studying the puzzles hidden within this world's digital confines, puzzles that are based on their creator's obsession with the pop culture of decades past and that promise massive power and fortune to whoever can unlock them. But when Wade stumbles upon the first clue, he finds himself beset by players willing to kill to take this ultimate prize. The race is on, and if Wade's going to survive, he'll have to win and confront the real world he's always been so desperate to escape. So here's the thing. 
<laughs> the movie is fine. I, I I see the movie for what it is, and I understand yeah. this message. I take issue with it. Oh, you told me about it, and I um, took issue with it. My my issue is that it feels like that thing that happens in in culture where we say just because you met someone online doesn't mean they're doesn't mean that they're a real relationship until you know each okay. other. Okay. The basically what it is, it is a movie about a future generation made by people from a past generation. Yeah. And with nobody from like a current generation to like bridge the gap because the, uh, sorry Go no ahead. you're fine you're oh fine. i was just gonna say like i love like i love steven spielberg and i think the man has done some amazing work he is not a man with like his finger on the pulse of society that's fair and um, like i and it's just like it is just that thing of like like there are a lot of old white directors who I respect, but I think it's time for a lot of old white directors to kind of just step aside and and let let a new generation like take over. Well, and the thing with the movie, because um, the message of the movie is that every day or every week uh, for one particular day, they shut down the Oasis it's fucking stupid. so that you have to disconnect and reconnect with the people in your life. It's fucking stupid. I, so, I mean, I understand the message that they're going for there, which is, which is don't be sucked into virtual, like, like into a virtual world, like, like deal with the real world. I, I get what that is saying. Yeah. The message of the book is that internet should be free for everyone and the, yes. and the internet should be free. Yes. The, the, the message of the book. Because be the whole point is they are, they're called gunters because they're looking for Easter eggs. They're mm -hmm. egg hunters or gunters. As the, you know, life has gone on, stuff has progressed, words get shortened. Um, yeah. So he is he is hunting for these Easter eggs to find the ultimate prize. The ultimate prize is inheriting Oasis, which mm -hmm. is, and, and okay, in the book, they don't, or they don't bring this up in the movie. In the book, this is where people go to school. Like, yes. Coronavirus I mean, wouldn't touch nobody because nobody in school, like kids could still be in school. I mean, okay, um, like. What you're talking about and, like, the concept of, like, the internet being free, it is literally something that we are experiencing right now during this time of coronavirus. Because, yeah. Because, like, it is being made abundantly clear, like, to be able to continue on to function in society that people have to have the internet. So, like, the internet is not a privilege. It is a right. Like, at this point. Like, you have to have the internet to be able to function. And, like, and, like entire corporations would not be able to work right now if their, if their employees did not have the internet to work from home. Yeah. Like, and that, so the internet, it is like, it's not just, I can't think of the word, but like, you know, it's, it's luxury. Not like, there we go. Thank you. It's not a luxury. Like it's a utility. Like it's just like electricity, like water, you know, like gas, like things like that. Like it is, it is a utility that you have to have. Like at in this the point. book, in the book, every child, every school age kid is given act free access to the Oasis to go to school. Mm -hmm. They're given, they're given like the base product essentially, um, which is like a, a key, like a, like the, the gloves and the yeah. the mask, like the virtual reality gloves and masks yeah, essentially like that VR you have to wear, yeah. but you don't, you don't get like the full suits and stuff. That's expensive that you don't really need to be in school, mm -hmm. but you, but that is school. Like you go and you go, you look like you do in normal life. You can't change how you look in that particular environment. Mm-hmm. But once you leave those worlds, then you can do all the things the movie shows. Yeah. And the kicker is the first clue 
is on the school worlds because the guy wanted it to be free for everyone to get to. Mm -hmm. I love it so much. And like the, it does have a lot of eighties references. The movie actually surprisingly has more in some ways. Well, Um, yeah, because it was directed by Steven fucking Spielberg. Well, but he refused to put some of his movies in that they reference in the thing, but also you could not get all the IP that is mentioned in this book to be in a movie. Cause there's one point in the book where it talks about like, because basically, like, the way the Oasis works is it's different planets, and you can mm-hmm. travel from planet to planet if you have the money. Mm-hmm. And he winds up getting a whole bunch of money for finding the first clue and yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. Um, he buys, like, a ship. And I think it – I don't remember what his is, but, like, they talk about it in this thing. You have the Enterprises floating around. You have Firefly. You have Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. You have – I mean, all of these ships that were never going to – to pass you have entire worlds dedicated to joss whedon and to star trek and to star wars like the falcon is in it Mm -hmm. and like that kind of stuff that you could not have gotten that ip in the movies no but in the book it's this rich world to me who's a big nerd Mm -hmm. you you know they they reference buffy they reference uh like i said there was all the works of joss whedon pretty much that were written that were done up to that point Mm -hmm. they reference um star trek and star wars and firefly and and you know man i'm trying to think what else like they they reference whole swaths of things can can i tell you one of my favorite things about this book yeah it's that um will we will wheaton reads the audiobook and (laughs) there is there is a reference to uh president will will wheaton in the novel oh yeah and nobody told him that and so when it came to that point in the novel he just like fucking died and like just started cackling and like when they were doing the recording and that is like one of my favorite things about (laughs) ready player one well and and i'm gonna spoil the ending a little bit because i think the journey is just as important as what happens i will say there is a year time jump in the book oh yeah Um, it goes on there is there is a huge piece of story that is not anywhere in that movie or in that book mm-hmm. that is in that movie. Um, yeah. The whole rescue scene, like Hannah John Kamen's character, as much as I love her, is not in existence in the book. She is literally the, like um, once I started hearing like reviews for the movie and a lot of people, a lot of the people that I heard were like, like that, you know, it was kind of like a big like spectacle movie, but that, it, mm-hmm. it, you know, but that a lot of people yeah. were kind of unhappy for reasons like we were talking about. And so yeah. the Hannah John Cameron at this point, it's literally the only draw for me is <laughs> because but I have the, such a huge crush on her. So the end of the book, they get to the end of the, they figure out the last clue. It's him and his team that are going to mm-hmm. inherit this company. They are going to be gazillionaires, mm-hmm. but they have a choice. Mm-hmm. And they decide to make it open source. Mm-hmm. Now, for those of you who don't understand what open source means, uh, because a lot of people don't, I, I happen to have a husband who is tech savvy. And so I know a lot of stuff, um, but not as much as him. But mm-hmm. basically, instead of having it be copyrighted, where only or, or you know, franchised or what not franchised, that's the wrong word, trademarked, where only their company could produce things for it. They are making it open source, which means they allow all the code to go out to the entire world and everyone can now mm-hmm. build their own worlds without having to worry about paying. Yeah. Um, it's just completely open and free. And that is the way the books end. Mm-hmm. And for me, I mean, he's still a massive gazillionaire. Right. Like he and his friends. But... For me, the message that that is getting through is 
is that freedom is not just for when you're in the real world Mm -hmm. and freedom it means so much more and i love the book for that message as much as anything else Mm -hmm. that message that that number one education should be free but also that people should be allowed to build their own like like it's because they use it in the movie very briefly they they show the amount of ads on the screen increasing Mm -hmm. and this like would take away all of that type of stuff and so I love it so much. Anyway, that is my rant and soapbox. And I am now stepping <laughs> off and going to say, Kia, what's next? Um, well, I'm kind of continuing a theme of like that has run through several of our episodes. And I'm going to mention Neil Gaiman again. And, um, and he will he will come up in my um, he will come up again in my last recommendation. Um, but I'm going to recommend um Trigger Warnings by Neil Gaiman. Um, and I was I was a little hesitant to include it um, because we talked so extensively about Neil Gaiman in our fantasy book Rex episode. Um, <laughs> but I, I love Trigger Warnings um, because it is it's a book of short stories and I love it so goddamn much. Um, I'm just going to kind of read like what uh, what Goodreads has about it. Um, trigger warnings explores the masks we all wear and the people we are beneath them to reveal our vulnerabilities and our truest selves. Here's a rich cornucopia of horror and ghost stories, science fiction and fairy tales, fabulism and poetry that explore the realm of experience and emotion. In adventure story, Gaiman ponders death and the way people take their stories with them when they die. His social media experience, a calendar of tales, are short takes inspired by replies to fans' tweets about the months of the year. Stories of pirates and the March winds, an igloo made of books, and a Mother's Day card that portends disturbances in the universe. Gaiman offers his own ingenious spin on Sherlock Holmes in his award-nominated mystery tale, The Case of Death and Honey, and Click Clack the Rattlebag explains the creaks and clatter we hear when we're all alone in the darkness. There is, there is such like a wide range of material in this book, but I, I rec, I literally will recommend reading it for the sole purpose of like, I think everybody needs to read the 12, uh, calendar of tales stories. Um, because there are several of those that had me like beyond verklempt. Um, like the one about the one that mentions, um, you know, the mother's day card that pretends disturbances in the universe. Like that one is like, that one's is, that one's one of the funny ones. The, um, the one about an igloo made of books is it's heartbreaking and beautiful. And, and then there's, you know, there's another one about, um, a woman who, um, there's another one about a woman who, who basically kind of gets, a genie and and then um but doesn't make any wishes and so um i mean like all i mean it's neil gaiman all of the stories are stunning but there is something to me so special about what he did with the calendar of tales because what it was like he it was it was literally like a social media kind of experiment and what he did was you know he tweeted out to his followers like basically to give him writing prompts for each month of the year and so you know he starts with january and goes through december and each one of and each prompt was given to him by a follower 
it was just a, like a fascinating way to go about like telling stories and um and just like just some of them are so good and i'm like I said, it's neil gaiman so everything is good but i don't know what it is but a but um because he released um through somebody i don't remember who it was but it was like through some company that like he kind of did this uh, calendar of tales for and and he released he released them online uh years ago like right after he he did it and i remember reading them then and particularly that one story i think it's july that's about the igloo of the igloo made of books and i just remember like i got so overwhelmed reading it um and just it was one of those that like you know you like you read something or you watch something or like you hear a song and just immediately like your brain and your heart just immediately goes this this is special and that that's exactly how i felt reading the calendar of tales stories um and like and also i'm um, like it, it, click clack the rattle bag i mentioned it in like our fantasy episode um but like i listened to him read that and it it's like 12 minutes long and it fucking scared the bejesus out of me um but it like it's an excellent story um there's just so much good stuff in in trigger warnings and so yeah that's that's my little continuation of the like yay neil gaiman parade <laughs> so uh what do you have next dear okay so the next one i'm gonna bring up uh was also a movie it was a television series it was a radio play uh-huh uh, and it's hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy by douglas adams uh-huh which is one of my husband's favorite sci-fi fantasy books as well like we were talking about it like what i was gonna put on there and he goes if it were me i'd have to put hitchhiker's guide i was like oh babe it's already there <laughs> um now the, the first book was uh published in 1979 mm -hmm. uh, and so i'm really i've i've really only read the first couple um because they get increasingly silly <laughs> i love them well yeah uh, it's the first douglas one adams the first one is called the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The second one is called the Restaurant at the End of the Universe. Uh, then there's So Long and Thanks, or no, then there's another one before that. But and So Long and Thanks for All the, for fish, all the fish was ni ni was 1984. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, there's one in between there, but I don't remember what it is. It's not on my list right here for some reason. But um, there's also some others after that. But those are the like there's four that are recognized as like they came out in like 79, 80, 82, and 84. So yeah. so they're like together. Uh, and it's the story of Arthur Dent. Seconds before Earth is demolished to make way for a galactic freeway, Arthur Dent is plugged off, plucked off the planet by his friend Ford Prefect, a researcher for the revised edition of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, who, for the last 15 years, has been posing as an out-of-work actor. Together, this dynamic pair begin a journey through the space, through space aided by... Uh, Aided by quotes from the Hitchhiker's Galaxy, such as a towel is the most massively useful thing an interstellar hitchhiker can have, and a galaxy full of ta travelers, Zaphod Beeblebrox, the two-headed, three-armed three ex-hippie, and totally out-to-lunch president of the galaxy, Trillian, Zaphod's girlfriend, formerly Trisha McMillan, whom Arthur tried to pick up at a cocktail party once, Marvin, a paranoid, brilliant, and chronically depressed robot... <laughs> um, which in the movie is voiced by Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman, yeah. Because the, the movie is... Uh, is uh martin freeman freeman yeah but the the first book which is Hitchhiker's of the galaxy is so good like it is so funny <laughs> it and it's stuff that could never come across in a movie right. uh, i haven't listened to the radio play or, or any of the other stuff i've just seen the uh the movie uh version is the only one that i've actually watched the adaptation but it mm -hmm. is so funny like there's a they have a drive on their spaceship 
that's like the random it's like the random something drive i don't remember what it is but basically like random things happen when you do it and sometimes you wind up where you're supposed to go and sometimes you know you get turned into a a giant fish Mm -hmm. or sometimes a house a sentient houseplant appears and then a whale lands on it yeah these these are things that happen in this in this novel it is crazy and outlandish and foolish in the best ways yes um it it just makes you laugh like it is meant to be it is meant to be absurd and i find it so and enjoy it so for that (laughs) yeah it's it's definitely like an icon of science fiction yeah well and douglas adams i mean he's just he's written some doctor who uh, mm-hmm. Back in the day, he wrote some classic Doctor Who. And- I think I'm fairly certain, like one of my favorite episodes, 42 from from the third series, was was based on was based on a Douglas Adams Doctor Who story. Would not surprise me. Yeah. Um. But yeah, he he you know, he was iconic in writing that ridiculous science fiction. Mm-hmm. It, it and he because it takes it doesn't take itself seriously, which is the best thing. Um. And the first one, the the Hitchhiker's Guide is the one I've read the most completely, the first book. Um, but yeah, it's just, it, you're following these characters that you, you just don't understand how Zaphod Beeble Brocks can wake up in the morning. Because, like, he's so dumb. Mm-hmm. But, and like, it's just, it's so fun. And like I said, absurd. Like, the absurdism is crazy. If you can't deal with absurdism, don't, don't read it. Ignore my recommendation. Yeah. But if you, if you like to just laugh at stupid people and stupid stuff... <laughs> This this is definitely one of those those books that you can do that with, mm-hmm. but so that's that's my okay. my three there. Um, my third one is the namesake by Jimpa Lahiri. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and read the um, the description from Goodreads first because um, it'll just it'll make it easier for me to to talk about it that way. Um, the namesake takes the Ganguly family from their tradition-bound life in Calcutta through their fraught transformation into Americans. On the heels of their arranged wedding, Ashok and Ashima Ganguly t- settle together in Cambridge, Massachusetts. An engineer by training, Ashok a- adapts far less warily than his wife, who resists all things American and pines for her family. When their son is born, the task of naming him betrays the vexed results of bringing old ways to the new world. Named for a Russian writer by his Indian parents in memory of a catastrophe years before, Gogol Ganguly knows only that he suffers the burden of his heritage as well as his odd antic name. Lahiri brings great empathy to Gogol as he strumbles along his first-generation path, strewn with conflicting loyalties, comic detours, and wrenching love affairs. With penetrating insight, she reveals not only the defining power of the, the, the defining power of names and expectations bestowed upon us by our parents, but also the means by which we slowly, sometimes painfully come to define ourselves. And uh, there's a movie based on this, on this novel. And I first saw the movie, The Namesake starring Cal Penn and Irfan Khan. It was around 2009 or so, but I think the movie came out in um, the movie came out in like, I think 2006. Um, But I saw the movie and I, I just thought it was like supremely gorgeous. Um, So I sought out, the novel and the novel turned out to be like even more beautiful than I could have imagined. Um, and the thing is, I'm like, I, I, you know, I have 
spent my entire life in America. My family has been American for generations. I I know nothing about being an immigrant. I know nothing about being Indian. But there is something about there's something about this book and the character of Gogol. Like I just I feel this like strange kinship with this character. Um because the because the thing is is that like as you as you see in the book in the movie is that there's the Indian tradition of kind of like the, like the family, like the head of the family or you like a family, like matriarch um, gives um, uh, I'm trying to think of the way to explain it. It's like, but they, they give a new child, a new child in the family. They give them their good name, which is, you know, is the name that, um, you know, like, which is the name that, that like their family will use and like that their family will call them. But then they have another name, which they use, um, you know, for like for the public, basically for, um, for, you know, for outside of the family and friends. And, and so when, when Gogol is born, they, you know, Ashok and Ashima, they, um, uh, they had written, you know, to their family in Calcutta and were like, hey, pick a name for our baby. But the letter got lost in the mail. And so they have this newborn and the hospital tells them, like, you have to put something on his birth certificate. Like, he has to have a name before you can, like, leave the hospital. You know, like, you just, like, just put down something. Like, you can change it later or whatever. And um, the... um the the russian author nikolai gogol is um is an author who is supremely important to gogol's father uh, ashok because years before when ashok was a young man he was traveling on a train and it was it was an overnight train and everybody you know it was nighttime everybody had gone to sleep and he couldn't sleep so he stayed up to read uh he stayed up to read a gogol novel and the train derails and Ashok is one of the only people to survive because he was still awake. And, and so, you know, that carries forward. And so the work of Gogol has a huge influence on him. And so he names his son Gogol and, um, you know, but for a, you know, for a first generation, you know, first generation American, born to immigrant Indian parents having been given a Russian name, it's, it, you know, it's a struggle for him. <laughs> and so he goes, you know, so one, like, you, and I've, um, you know, I, I follow, you know, I follow quite a few people on social media who are that kind of like first generation, like, American, you know, children of immigrants. And so, you know, I hear, like, I read from them, you know, a lot of their, you know, their kind of struggles of being that, you know, like you identify as American, but your family still identifies as, you know, from their country of origin. And so it's like, you want to be relevant and part of the culture, but, you know, your family is still tied to like, to the traditional ways of their culture. And so it's, you know, hard finding like the compromise and the balance between that. And so 
that is part of Gogol's struggle. And he ends up eventually like changing his name to Nick Hill. And so he goes, he, he ends up going by Nick. Um, and it's not until much later that he finds out why he was named Gogol. Um, and like I said, I don't know what it is about this book, but like I just felt like a kinship with Gogol for also having had the burden of having a unique name and not knowing what to do about it. Um, Cause I mean, it's, it's something kind of like, so seemingly like so trivial, but having been given the name Kia when it, you know, and it being born in 1984, it was not an, you know, like everybody in my class was named, was either named like Jennifer or Tiffany or Stephanie. And, and here I am with this completely oddball name and with a middle name that is even more oddball. And with the last name, with the last name Stacy's like millions of people in my life have thought that Stacy is my first name. And sometimes <laughs> I just let them go with it. Um, and I, I will answer to Stacy because sometimes it's just easier than explaining to somebody, no, that's not my name. But um, you know, and the thing is, is that I never like, I was never like present enough I never, like, when I was younger and I never had, like, the presence of mind to ask him myself, like, to ask my dad, why did you give me this name? Because whenever anybody would ask him, um, like, so, like, one day somebody just randomly asked him, like, oh, did you name her after you? Because my dad's name is Keith. I mean, it was, it was his middle name, but it's what he went by. And so, um... Like he, you know, he, like what he just went with it. He was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I named her after me. And, but that, that wasn't actually why. And from what I heard, cause I, I've asked my mom about it. I was like, why did you let him give me this name? Did you have no input? Because had I been a boy, my name would have been Kyle. And I'm like, okay, that's so fucking normal. <laughs> like, <laughs> why did I get this name instead? And according to my mom, she's like, she's like, I don't know. He came up like, I thought it was pretty. I went with it. And I was like, okay, <laughs> like maybe some more like proactiveness would have been great. But, you know, um, but, you know, but she, she had had a little bit of a busy day that day. So, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you know, kind of what she told me was that, you know, kind of the story that I picked up over the years from like what he told various family members is that when he was in the Navy, um, it was a name that he heard when he was in port somewhere. Um, when he was in, I think he was in Africa and he heard it because that the thing is like my, the name Kia is most commonly found in Africa. It's a Swahili name that means hill. Um, and, and so that's, you know, but all of them, like I've spent, you know, from the time I was eight, I've had people asking me, oh, were you named after the car? <laughs> I'm like, nope, I was not. And so, um, like I said, and I've, it's just been this whole like long rambling explanation to explain like why 
I love this book so much is because there's just something about like, and, and also like, and my middle name, like my middle name is just, it's, it's the name of a river, like just some random river again, like he heard it somewhere, but like, I never got the opportunity to ask him why. (laughs) And I struggled for a long time when I was a kid, you know, like I, like I hate, like I didn't like my name. And I, because I never want, because if you know anything about me, I'm like, I'm a, like, I have anxiety. I'm a very shy person. I have always wanted to just kind of like, I've wanted to be like, just blend into like the wallpaper. I'm like, don't notice me. Don't pay attention to me. I'm like, just like, let me like hang out here in the background and observe. That's all I've ever wanted. And so having this name, it put a spotlight on me that I never wanted. And, and so like, I hated my name and I always wanted to change it when I was a kid. And, um, cause I wanted to be normal. And then as I got older and it wasn't until that I, it wasn't until I was in college and, and I started, um, you know, having, you know, like professors and various people to like, like I, I was, um, our, uh, our fiction writing professor, uh-huh. who um who one day just told me she, she's like you know she's like I've had like so many like you know Jennifer's and Ashley's and things she's like you are the only Kia I have ever had she's like and I I love that <laughs> and I'm just like thank you and she's like no she's like it is just she's like it is a unique name for a unique person and she's like and you were just a delight and I was like okay I'm gonna go now I'm like I didn't <laughs> I'm like, I, I appreciate that, but I feel very awkward now. So I'm going to leave. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and so, but that's just kind of like been my experience, but you know, but it, it took me a long time to kind of finally come around and be like, no, I like my dad gave me my name and I'm okay with it. And I like it. And, and that, that's something like, that is a journey that Google goes through and it's, because at some point in the in the novel, like his father Ashok has a heart attack and dies, and so it's not until after like the death of his father that he suddenly understands all of the culture that they wanted him to inherit, and 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 also you know it's it's not until after his father's death that like he begins to understand his father and his relationship with his father, and that is also a journey that I went through. And like I said, this has been a very long winded explanation um of me explaining like why i love this book and it is just like the movie is gorgeous like the book is absolutely beautiful and i very 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 much recommend it i like it's another one of these books that like i just i recommend it to like anytime somebody is like oh i want a book to read but i don't know what and i'm like the namesake you should check it out but anyway i'm i'm going to stop talking now and like give give you the floor again <laughs> Well, and now for something completely different. Um, I, the next, I will say the rest of the books that I'm going to talk about are nonfiction Mm -hmm. autobiographies. Mm. Um, And the, the first person I want to talk about is one of my heroes in life. Uh, Carrie Fisher was someone that I massively looked up to. Um, Mm -hmm for not just because she was princess leia but because she was you know this voice for so many different types of people and Mm -hmm. voice for you know for addiction for mental health 
she was so so passionate about so many things and she she gave a voice to so many things um and i hugely admire her and always did uh from small yeah from, from, from being a small child and growing up with princess leia to being an adult woman and and seeing how carrie fisher handled her life Mm-hmm. Um, so and I have the book Wishful Drinking, which I adore. There's an HBO <laughs> series that she or special that she did that went with that book, yeah. and and it's a great book, and I really really love it. Uh, the sequel to that is Shockaholic, which I never actually read, but I really want to, just haven't. But the one I want to talk about is the one that came out just before she died, mm-hmm. uh, and that's The Princess Diarist. Yeah. Uh, and it's the synopsis is when Carrie Fisher discovered the journals she kept during the filming of the first Star Wars movie, she was astonished to see what they had preserved. Plaintive love poems, unbridled musings from youthful naivete, and a vulnerability she barely recognized. Before her passing, her fame as an author, actress, and pop culture icon was indisputable. But in 1977, Carrie Fisher was just a teenager with an all-consuming crush on Harrison Ford. <laughs> uh, with these excerpts from her handwritten diary, uh, handwritten notebooks, sorry. The Princess Diarist is Fisher's intimate and revealing recollection of what happened on one of the most famous film sets of all time and what developed behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. She also ponders the joys and insanity of celebrity and the absurdity of a life spawned by Hollywood royalty, only to be surpassed by her own outer space royalty. <laughs> Laugh out loud, hilarious, and endlessly quotable. The Princess Diarist brims with candor and introspection of a diary while offering shrewd insight into one of Hollywood's most beloved stars. Um, as I said, I've read Wishful Drinking. Uh, if you don't know, Carrie Fisher was the daughter of Debbie, Re- was a daughter of Debbie Reynolds, mm-hmm. who was super famous in her own right. Yes. Uh, and then Eddie Fisher, who was a famous singer. Mm-hmm. And they were like a Hollywood sweetheart couple until Eddie left her mm-hmm. uh, for Elizabeth Taylor, wh- who was Debbie yeah. Reynolds' best friend. Like, and, and oh, in Wishful yeah, Drinking. Not that little tidbit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, after Elizabeth Taylor's uh, husband died, one of them. Because <laughs> Elizabeth Taylor I was, was married a lot. I was to ask which one. I don't remember, uh, but it was one Eddie because Eddie, Debbie, uh, Elizabeth, and that husband were all very close. Yeah, and that husband died, and Eddie stepped in and kind of became the shoulder, and ultimately became a lot more than that that Elizabeth leaned on. Um, yeah, but and and wishful drinking, she talks about that pretty blatantly. Like she doesn't shy away from mm-hmm. it. She's very vocal about it, but she's she also never fully blames her parents she's like my parents my parents were crap could be crappy people because we can all be crappy people mm-hmm. um but the and the thing is she has she was very open about the fact that she had electroshock therapy mm-hmm. and her electroshock therapy actually uh removed part of her memory yeah and some of that was is comes up in the princess diarist because she reads through her notebooks and doesn't remember some of the things that are in those notebooks mm-hmm. but in the in the novel she talks or not the novel sorry in the autobiography of the princess diarist she talks about her love affair with harrison ford Mm -hmm. and it is some of my favorite stuff i've ever read that she's (laughs) written because she she writes about it as she was like we were she was he was already separated from his wife so i wasn't like a homewrecker Mm -hmm. he was already separated from his first wife but they were passionate with each other and she She's like, I was a stupid idiot girl, so of course I was doodling Mrs. Harrison Ford in all my notebooks. Uh-huh. But looking back on it, she's like, that was never where we were going. And by the time they filmed uh, Empire, they weren't together. Mm-hmm. Like, they were only together for the filming of Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, and it was a brief, passionate thing, but it allowed them to remain friendly. Mm-hmm. And And I just love the way she, once again, she never says a negative thing about Harrison Ford. Mm-hmm. 
like there's nothing negative in what happened between them and i love that um but it, it also talks about like her daughter and her mother and and growing up with like her mom being a little bit crazy and <laughs> and like yeah. carrie carrie grant told her mom how well lsd helped him so yeah uh and so Carrie, but Carrie Grant wound up like calling her on the phone when she was going mm-hmm. through drug addiction I, I, stuff. I remember, I remember reading that bit. And I'm just like, I'm so jealous of Carrie Fisher right now. Oh but, God. but she just, she was such a person that had this exuberance and it comes through in her writing mm-hmm. and wishful drinking is a very small book. So if you want a smaller one, read wishful drinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, the princess Diaries is a little bit longer. Uh, I, it took me a long time to finish because I was partway through it when she died Mm -hmm. and I had to put it down for a little while because I was like, it's, it's stupid to say that someone that I never met that I have nothing in common with. I'm like, genuinely, I have nothing in common with Carrie Fisher when it comes to the things we've been through and and the life that they led. I just admired her as a person Mm -hmm. a lot for, for overcoming everything she'd overcome for raising Billy by herself um you know her husband billy's dad left carrie for another man mm-hmm. um you know and in wishful drinking she talks about waking up next to a friend who was dead in bed next to her yep um i mean she she lived an incredibly harrowing life and she didn't shy away from talking about um her mental health she like i just love her and every story i hear about her makes me happier than the last um, yeah even the bad stories <laughs> Um, because we, when she passed away, we like there was something really lost. Um, oh yeah, and and I I just love her forever, and so I want everyone to read what she's written. <laughs> I uh, her, her mother Debbie Reynolds also has some great autobiographies out there, and I have one of them as well. But mm-hmm. but Carrie's was the one that like Debbie is the nice person. This sounds so <laughs> weird. Debbie is nice, and so Debbie would would say things like say nice things like you know explanatory about people or whatever no carrie was just blunt like her mom oh, was crazy yeah. like she would say that she's you know the uh the documentary bright uh, what was it bright lights i don't think it was just bright lights called. is what yeah. it was called and it was it was carrie and debbie it was a documentary about the two of them and it it, it came out after they passed and they passed very close together and and stuff yeah. like that i don't know if everybody knows that they they passed carrie passed first and then debbie passed very quickly after mm-hmm. um and like I've always felt like that it it just it was such a a thing because Debbie Reynolds was like this is sounds so weird to say it this way Debbie Reynolds had a lot of come with my grandmother like they were from the same era and so Debbie Reynolds had always had that same like comparison in my head it's like Debbie Reynolds Betty White and my grandma have the same like like I yeah. think about them and in, in not the same way but you know what I mean like there's there's this similar generation so yeah Debbie passing Debbie Reynolds when she passed away was was rough especially on top of her daughter's passing and i was just such a fan of carrie mm-hmm. that that yeah read if it, it will give you inspiration and help and help you laugh through the hardest things that anyone could go through because that's that was what both debbie and carrie did and i find that hugely inspirational uh, especially like right now it's a hugely yeah. inspirational time to start laughing through the most horrible ridiculous things that happen yeah um, i i still like i was actually mentioning to my mom the other day because she and i were i don't remember how we got off on the type of conversation but she and i were for some reason talking about david bowie and <laughs> and i mentioned i was like yeah 
David Bowie and Carrie Fisher, like, those are still, like, the two that, like, it hurts to think about. I, I kept together, but when I first started talking, I was trying not to get emotional because Carrie Fisher is someone that I, once again, we have nothing in common, had nothing in common. Like, we didn't have, we don't have the same belief system in a lot of ways, but I loved her as a human being. And I, she's one of the people, like, our friend, we have a friend who saw her in an airport and didn't go over and say anything. <laughs> I was like, I know that that was the right move, but in yeah. the same breath, <laughs> I'm like, how could you not at least just take a picture from and go, Carrie Fisher, I love you. Yeah. But, but yeah, like, I just, I love Carrie Fisher and I get emotional talking about her because of how much I love, I love what she stood for and who she was as a yeah. person. Yeah. And, and, in, and definitely like the later years of her life, because I, um, just seeing her be so open about mental illness like that did mm-hmm. I mean like I loved her for so many reasons that like I could never begin you know that I could never begin to like put into words but like like I said in in the years before her death like her being so open about mental illness and like being a person who also struggles with that and comes from you know, a family of people who have struggled with that. Like mm-hmm. it was like, it, it did so much for me. Like, and, and so, yeah, I, I miss space mom a um, lot. Bright lights. Like I said, I don't remember if you ever watched that or not. I have not. Um, she actually, they offered to turn off the camera and she told them to keep it on because she was having a manic episode. Mm-hmm. And she was like, I think it's important that people see and understand this. Yeah. And I mean, if as if I, I didn't see it, Tosh, she passed away. So I was like, okay, so you're just beyond the grave. You're still blowing me away at how giving you are to to allow that mm-hmm. to be put out there. Yeah. Um. Just it, like she blew me away as a person with how, and and I hear about like what she used to do at cons and how she, <laughs> she used like, to glitter glitter people. <laughs> yeah. Like she yeah. just seemed like this person that was larger than life in so many ways, but she struggled. And she made her struggles open, which a lot of people won't do. Yeah. And I, yeah, I hugely admire her for that. Forever. Like, forever, forever. so great. Anyway, sorry. That's why I love Carrie Fisher it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, the next one on my list is, um, and it's something I've I've mentioned in previous episodes, and it's The Book Thief by Marcus Zusick. Um. Next to Pawn of Prophecy by David Eddings, which I talked about extensively in our uh, fantasy episode. Next to that, The Book Thief is probably my favorite book of all time. Um, I'm going to give the synopsis and then I'll kind of talk about it a little um, from Goodreads. It's 1939, Nazi Germany. The country is holding its breath. Death has never been busier and will be busier still. By her brother's graveside, Liesel's life changed... Liesel's life is changed when she picks up a single object, partially hidden in the snow. It is the gravedigger's handbook, left behind there by accident, and it is her first act of book thievery. So begins a love affair with books and words as Liesel, with the help of her accordion-playing foster father, learns to read. Soon she is stealing books from Nazi book burnings, the the mayor's wife's library, wherever there are books to be found. But these are dangerous times. When Liesel's foster family hides a Jew in their basement, Liesel's world is both opened up and closed down. In superbly crafted writing that burns with intensity, award-winning author Marcus Zusick has given us one of the most enduring stories of our time. And that last sentence is something that I firmly believe. Um, 
I, I have always had, and again, like fascination, like is not the right word. Interest kind of isn't the right word either, but I read, um, I read, uh, number of the stars by Lois Lowry, um, which is about, you know, like a Polish family, like hiding, you know, like basically like a Jew, like having a Jewish girl pretend to be their daughter, like to keep her safe. And, um, uh, Jane Yolen's book, Briar Rose, which is, um, um, a woman's grandmother, uh, often tells the story of basically like how she was Briar Rose, um, you know, Sleeping Beauty. And this woman has to kind of unravel her grandmother's life story and finds out that like, you know, her grandmother like escaped a concentration camp and, things like that. And so I have, I have always had, like, like I said, fascination and interest kind of aren't the right words, but they're the ones I'm going to use. But I've always had an interest in reading, um, I like Holocaust stories and stories like of Nazi Germany, because it is just something that like, I read it because I like, I don't know, like there is a deep, part of me that like I like I feel a deep-seated need to like understand like how did this happen and like and so hearing those stories um I don't like it's just I don't and I I like I don't like I can't like put into words like why I seek out those stories but I do um and it's probably because you know there is something in me that like I I am drawn to tragedy and um and so like that you know that is one of like the most deeply tragic things that I think has happened in history um mm-hmm. but in um <laughs> so I, I I texted you last night because I was trying to figure out when it was that I actually read this book <laughs> And I figured out another way to pinpoint it. And it was in 2011. (laughs) Um, But in 2011, um, I found just by way of being a person on the internet, I somehow stumbled upon an abridged audio version of The Book Thief read by Christopher Eccleston for BBC Radio. And um, because, you know, just at the time, I, you know, I, I didn't have like an auxiliary cable or like a way to like plug in my phone or anything like that. I had to burn, um, I had to burn this, uh, this audio, uh, version onto a CD. And, um, so I, like, I burned it onto a disc and, uh, I had, there was, um, by this time I had already like, you know, graduated college and I was back living with my mom and, and, and all of these things. And I had just gotten laid off from work and I got a phone call from my former boss, um, in Branson. And, uh, she and her husband were going out of town on vacation and it was something like with their whole family and they couldn't really cancel, but they couldn't close the store and the person that they would normally have cover it, like wasn't able to. So could I really like do them a really, really big favor and come and work the store for a week while they were out of town? And so since I had just gotten laid off and had nothing to do, I like, I agreed. Yes, I will go and do that. And 
Um, it was a at, it was a five hour drive from my hometown to Branson, and I listened to this to this abridged like audio version on the way there, and I basically, um, by um, kind of by the time I got um just outside of Branson, I was basically a sobbing mess, and. I didn't have to be at the store for like another like hour. And so I drove instead of driving down to the mall um, and spending time with my boss and her husband and, and everybody and, and, um, and figuring out what I needed to do. I drove straight to books a million <laughs> and went in <laughs> and bought a physical copy of this book. And I spent that entire week um, that I was there at the store by myself from open to close. Um, I spent that entire time, like when I didn't have customers, I was sitting in the back reading this novel and, um, and it's just like, I don't have enough words in my vocabulary to explain how profoundly this book affected me. Um, because like, I was always going to be like interested in the story anyway, but it adds the framework of death is a narrator. Like death is the narrator of the book and death is the narrator because death found Liesl's book. And so, and so like death is telling Liesl's story. And I find it infinitely fascinating. And because, because death is the narrator and because I first heard this story, listening to um, this, this uh, radio version uh, read by Christopher Eccleston to me, um, death now has a Northern British accent. And I can't, <laughs> I can't get that out of my head. And so when I finally like got around to watching the movie adaptation of, um, of the book thief in which death is voiced by Roger Allen, who is an actor who I supremely love. Um, and Michelle, you would know him as, um, uh, as Douglas from cabin pressure. Ah, yes. Um, like, he's the voice of death and i just like kept watching the movie and i'm like yeah this just feels wrong <laughs> like death has a northern accent um but i mean it opens you know it opens with death saying you know here's a small fact you are going to die like does that frighten you it shouldn't and and you know and so death explains like it's like this is what it will be like when i come for you so there's no need to be afraid and then he goes into explaining how, um, I say he, death is never gendered. I've just heard death with a male voice. So that's why I say he, um, but like there, you know, there are times that, and basically death, you know, goes into explain like, you know, I'm always busy, but I was never busier than like this time. And, and, and goes on to explain things, you know, like, about he's like you know this is what you're going to see and you know i met the book thief three times and so and then you know the story begins you know with uh, telling liesel's story and her 
you know, her brother dying on, on the train, you know, taking her to her foster parents. And so like her brother is buried just like in the snow, um, beside the train tracks and, you know, and then off they go and she's given to another family. And, and so, and how she begins collecting books and how her foster father, uh, Hans Huberman, how he, he teaches her to read. And then Max, uh, the Jewish man that the, the young Jewish man that like they begin hiding in their, you know, in their basement and how dangerous it is. And, um, you know, and, and death explains, you know, like the, you know, the first time that, you know, the first time that he saw Liesl is, you know, at her, at her brother's graveside. And then he sees her again, you know, outside of the town, um, you know, like outside of her town where like a German fighter pilot had crashed and died and Liesl and her friend were there. Um, and then how he sees her again when her, when her and like her street gets bombed and everybody um, and everybody dies except for her. And that's where she, she survived because she stayed up late writing in her like journal or like basically like a book that had been given to her to write her own story. And she stayed up late and she was in the basement writing when the bomb hit and everybody else on her street was asleep. And so as soldiers like pick her out of the rubble, they find her book and like toss it aside and death picks it up. And so that is how death is telling the story of Liesl Memminger. And um, that, you know, this isn't, this isn't a spoiler. Um, because, like it doesn't really give anything away, but the fact that the book finishes with death's narration and the last thing that death says is it's the thing that he said to Liesl when he, you know, when it was finally her time and he comes to collect her and he tells her, I am haunted by humans. And that fucked me up beyond measure. And like I said, there is this book. It means so fucking much to me. And I think it is one of the most incredible books who have come out in like the last couple of decades. And I had just started working at, um, at the company that I work for. I had just started working there and like the movie was about to come out. And one of my coworkers, I walked into the break room, uh, to get some water when and I walked in and like one of my coworkers was reading the book and was talking to another one of my coworkers. Me, you know, the other coworker asked her, is like, oh well, hey, so you know, so is that a good book? And the coworker who was reading it just says, I don't know, it's kind of dumb. I'm like, I don't get it. And like my soul left my body. I was just like, what do you mean you don't get it? I'm like, it is it's it's about humanity, but it's told from the perspective of death. Like, how do you not understand? Like, this is, this is incredible. Like, this is ingenious. Like, what do you, like, I literally just like wanted to like, I'd like my head nearly exploded. <laughs> I, I remember you telling me yeah. about that. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just, I couldn't handle it. Cause I was just, like I said, I, it is such an incredible story. And the, um, the movie is a, is a decent adaptation. 
it um like I have one like majorly like nitpicky thing about it, but I'm I won't I won't get into it. Um but um and because it's literally just like one like 15 second scene in the movie and it's just I'm like you know um, it's the one thing that I just can't handle but everything else like it's a very faithful adaptation so like if you know the book thief it's it's a doorstop of a book it's very thick but it is worth it is absolutely worth the read all of the characters are amazing um like and there's there's such amazing like character growth and like it is it's an amazing story um and you know but if like if you see like the length of the book and it's a little too much for you i'm like i understand watch the movie it's fine and (laughs) then maybe after you've seen the movie give the book a try um but anyway like i said i i can ramble on and on and on about how much i love the book thief um oh also i will say (laughs) after i read it i lent it to our friend ann and um she called me (laughs) She called me like after she finished it and was just like, How dare you? <laughs> I was like, I'm sorry. She's like, I finished. Like, I I am on like I am just I I'm sobbing. And like, she was just like absolutely like just like in tears. And it was just like I I don't I I can't and just and I was like yes like this is exactly what I hoped for (laughs) it's you know it's like when you and I like talk about shows or movies or something I'm like hey this is painful watch it (laughs) exactly sad is happy for deep people yes exactly but anyway what uh yes to quote Doctor Who what uh what is your last recommendation dear okay so once again I'm going back to the autobiography well Mm because I have a whole collection that I adore uh, and this one, I decided to go with someone that I just genuinely love, and I makes me smile. Uh, My Lucky Life in and Out of Show Business by Dick Van Dyke. I um, wondered. I well, I mean, I also have Carol Burnett's, and that was like a that was right up there because mm-hmm. I adore Carol oh. Burnett too. I mean, they're both uh, amazing people. They are. You know, Dick Van Dyke is entering. He's in his nineties now. He's like ninety four. Um, mm-hmm. and he's still <laughs> dancing and singing and laughing and. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy because he, he wrote this book and then he wrote a book called uh, Keep Moving and Other Advice for Old Age or something like that. Yeah. And My Lucky Life in and Out of Show Business literally chronicles um, a big, big chunk of his life, um, but not the whole thing. <laughs> uh, it stops just, I want to say just after the death of uh, the woman he loved because uh, he has, he's had I would say probably three massive relationships in his life. His mm-hmm. first wife, who he had all his children with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there was a woman he lived with for a long time. They never got married. And he actually said that was one of his regrets is because she was too scared because she'd been in a relationship where she'd kind of gotten um, the short end of the stick and the divorce. And so she wouldn't put herself in that situation again. Yeah. Uh, but he was with her. She had, I think, cancer and she died like with him. Mm-hmm. And then he's now married to a... I think she's almost 50 now, a woman named Arlene, who mm-hmm. is hysterical. The two of them are so funny together. I've, I've seen videos of them, and they are just absolutely, like, they're so lovely. They're so cute. For for the age difference, you'd think, like, it would skeeve you out. But, like, they clearly adore each other. And and he talks about it in, in the second book. He talks about it more. That there was some, like, 
from both from her and from other people in their lives, there was some like, you realize how much older he is than you. And and this is, this may be too much of a thing, but they're just so good together. But my life, lucky life in and out of show business doesn't touch on Arlene. It, it covers the first part of his life. And he, I won't say it's, it's like, um, it's not like Carrie Fisher in that it's this, like, I'm going to, I'm going to show you every single bad thing that ever happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's more of like I'm going to take you on a tour of my life and tell you about what it meant to me that these things mm-hmm. were happening. Um, he was open about um, uh, he was worried he was going to become an alcoholic. He was on that road and he went to rehab, uh, which I didn't know. Like he kept it very mm-hmm. quiet when it happened. Um, but he was a social drinker who mm-hmm. turned into a have to have one before I go to bed have to have uh, and he's and, okay. and or he'd get the shakes at night like that mm, kind of yeah. like it was very secret very quiet very like he didn't go out and do anything crazy but he saw what was happening and and was able to put a stop to it like he went mm-hmm. and, and got help and that kind of stuff i admire that just in and of itself um he talks about his marriage he he's very open about the fact that his marriage ended because of his job a lot of mm-hmm. it is because of his job and because he couldn't put the work into it. Um, he talks about his kids, but he talks about the Dick Van Dyke show, which I'm a huge fan of. <laughs> it's uh, so good. And Carl Reiner and Mary Tyler Moore. Um, and then see, okay, everybody knows him from Mary Poppins. I will always love him from Mary Poppins. Mm-hmm. But for me, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang was actually the one I watched probably more often than Mary Poppins. Mm-hmm. And the there's a lullaby in it that if I ever have children, it's the lullaby I'm using. It's Hushabye Mountain. Yeah. I love Hushabye Mountain. It's one of my favorite. When I used to babysit my friend, uh, our friend Shane's kids, mm-hmm. that's one of the songs that I would hum to them when yeah. I would put them down for a nap or whatever. And I like, he's just, he's such a colorful guy and reading, reading like anything from that era is always something that I supremely love anyway, mm-hmm. because that is, that is one of my favorite eras of show business, of movies, of, of television. Like I love hearing stories from that, from that fifties, sixties on era. Like, I just think it's, it's fascinating to me to hear like Carl Reiner and, and Mel Brooks and, and Norman Lear and these people mm-hmm. talk. I I could do that all day. Yeah. Like there's a biography or a, a documentary that, that uh, Carl Reiner put put out at one point about being old, essentially, mm-hmm. and it has like him, and it has like uh, Kirk Douglas, and it has Betty White. Uh, I mean, all of these older people that that you know, it's just really fascinating. But Dick Van Dyke has just always had this like boyish attitude. Oh yeah, like there's a, there's a story, and I don't remember which book it's in, um, but there's a story he tells about when he was filming filming Chi Chi Bang Bang, there's a number in it called Toot Sweet where he has to do a lot of dancing and stuff. Mm-hmm. And he felt something in his foot pop as he was doing it, his leg. And he he, you know, show must go on. He was on stage. He did all that kind of stuff. So he just kept going. Got worse and worse. They finally got him to go to a doctor. And the doctor was like, you are riddled with arthritis. Mm-hmm. I don't understand how you're moving. Like you, you're going to be in a wheelchair. This was in like the late sixties. Yeah. They're like, you're going to be in a wheelchair in the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. And he, he says, I got up and started dancing in the middle of the, <laughs> of the room because no, that like, like he, nothing's going to keep him down. That's just not who he is. He's going to keep moving as long as he's physically able 
to move. Mm-hmm. And I, like that type of attitude is another one that's just like, that's, he comes from this older Hollywood su- subset, but he's also like a very just kind person. And I, I love reading kind people getting to be happy. Mm-hmm. That sounds so weird. No, I get but, it. But yeah, and, it, and it's for me, like I said, once again, it's really cool to read the the show business aspect of things and, and how like Bye Bye Birdie got put together and, and, you know, that type of stuff. But also the, he tells, talks about his own personal experiences at home and, and I just, I just really adore Dick Van Dyke. So, I mean, who doesn't I mean, want to, I was like, who doesn't adore Dick Van Dyke? I mean, if you don't, I feel really bad for you because he's a really <laughs> sweet person from his books and from his interviews. He's just seems like a really sweet person. Mm-hmm. Also, he's one of the like few 90 something year olds on Twitter. Yes. Like the fact that he has a Twitter is insane to me. <laughs> like it, he now goes to conventions and meets people. Yeah. So it's crazy. Like he's so active for someone his age. And I mean, part of that probably does come from having a much younger wife. That probably mm-hmm. does not hurt. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, he's just so active and, and like not going to quit type of guy. I love that attitude to see that in someone like him. It's just great. But so that's me. I love Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> I mean, he's the best. He talks about his brother in the book too, and I liked his brother too. So that's yeah. always. Oh, he talks about Murder She Wrote in the in the book too, and I was a huge <laughs> Murder She Wrote fan. Or not Murder She Wrote. Sorry, Dinah's Murder. I was about to say Dinah's Murder. I meant yeah, uh, and because uh, Dinah's Murder is the show that came around when he was older, mm-hmm. and he made the opening graphics for that. Like he went and learned. Oh, cool how to use a computer and he made like the opening which he was in his like 60s at the time 60s 70s and he went and learned how to do like graphic design i mean it's just that always learning thing like you need to that's what i've always heard with older people is they need to always be learning once they stop that's when yeah that's when everything kind of falls apart Mm -hmm. so yeah i just find him like endlessly fascinating in that way that he he's just never he's just not gonna stop he's gonna keep learning and keep moving and how can i not love that mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway um my final one is <laughs> it is a book that in some ways defies description and even goodreads has trouble with it because i'm going to read you the goodreads synopsis before i discuss the book because it kind of amuses me how can anyone describe this book? It isn't a parable, a fairy tale, or a poem, but rather a mixture of all three. It is beautiful and it is comic. It is philosophical and it is cheery. What we suppose we are trying fumbly to say is, in a word, that it is Thurber. There are only a few reasons why everybody has always wanted to read this kind of story. If you have always wanted to love a princess, if you always wanted to be a prince, if you always wanted the wicked duke to be punished, or if you always wanted to live happily ever after. Too little of this kind of thing is going on in the world today, but all of it is going on valorously in The Thirteen Clocks. Um, Thirteen Clocks by James Thurber is is the book that I'm talking about. And um, I told you I was going to mention Neil Gaiman once more before the end of this podcast and I'm doing it now. Um, it was, it was probably just, Bingo. Like, just kidding. <laughs> um, but it was, it was probably like just like a couple of years ago. Um, up until that point, I had never heard of the 13 clocks. Um, 
And and so it wasn't until it wasn't until Neil Gaiman tweeted about this book being on sale um, that I even became aware of its existence. Its existence. Um, and Neil Gaiman tweeted about it because he wrote an introduction to the book. And and so you know it was on sale, so he was going to promote this book. And so I was like, oh, why not? It sounds interesting. And hey, I can get it for like four dollars. Why not? Um, and so. I, you know, I just, I kind of bought it on a whim and then, you know, it arrived and, and it wasn't, you know, I basically had it around for a couple of days. And then one night after work, I came home and, you know, like on a Friday and I, like, I was just like, okay, why not? Like, I'm going to, I'm just going to sit down and I'm going to read this. So I started reading it and I didn't quite get it until <laughs> like a couple of chapters in when like I had a moment like I was reading it and and I had a moment of confusion over some syntax and I was like oh wait I don't understand this and so I, I do that it's something like if I don't quite understand I will I will read the sentence aloud so that like my brain can hear it and process it better and it wasn't until like I read that sentence out loud that I was like oh oh okay like and everything fell into place because the 13 clocks it it's a book that you almost have to experience rather than just read um and so i remember it was like a couple of weeks later i ended up on a um basically on a skype call with our friend ann and um and, you know, and she and I, um, I think I've been, I've probably mentioned this on the podcast before, um, but she and I, because, you know, we were English majors and we had to read a fuck ton of stuff uh, for various yep. classes that kind of at the end of the day, we would get burnout. And, and so we, we started basically, we started like having story time like at night kind of like an you know a couple of hours or so like before we decided to like shut everything down and go to bed she or i would like we would pick up a book that had nothing to do with the english department and we would read a few chapters aloud to each other like i read her um you know i read her the last unicorn um like she and i took turns reading from gone with the wind and stuff like that. And so it's just, we've kind of continued this tradition of Anne and I having story time. And so she and I were on this Skype call and I said, I was like, oh, like, I got this book the other day and, and I, I think you would love it. And so, and it's, it's longer than kind of like your typical like storybook. So it took a little while to read it, but, but basically it's like, she was just kind of doing chores, you know, in her apartment in China. And I was, you know, in my apartment, you know, in the evening at home, like not doing anything. And so like, I just read this book aloud and it, like I said, it is a book that you kind of have to experience. Um, and so with that in mind, I'm going to kind of read just, I'm going to read a little bit of it just to kind of give you a taste of what this book is about. But I mean, it's literally, you know, the, the whole like premise of the book is that there is a princess and there is an evil duke and there's a prince who, who seeks the princess's hand and the evil duke sets him to perform, you know, impossible tasks in order to win her hand. And that's basically 
the whole premise of the entire story, but there is something just so like unique about this book. And like I said, I'm, I'm going to read, I'm going to read a little bit of it just to kind of give you an idea because as, and even Goodreads had a problem with describing this book. So like, I don't feel too bad about not being able to do it myself. Um, but here's just a little bit of it. Once upon a time in a gloomy castle on a lonely hill where there were 13 clocks that wouldn't go, there lived a cold, aggressive duke and his niece, the princess Sarah Linda. She was warm in every wind and weather, but he was always cold. His hands were as cold as his smile and almost as cold as his heart. He wore gloves when he was asleep and he wore gloves when he was awake, which made it difficult for him to pick up pins or coins or the kernels of nuts or to tear the wings from nightingales. He was six feet four and 46 and even colder than he thought he was. One eye wore a velvet patch, the other glittered with a monocle, which made half of his body seem closer to you than the other half. He had lost one eye when he was 12, for he was fond of peering into nests and lairs in search of birds and animals to maul. One afternoon, a mother shrike had mauled him first. His nights were spent in evil dreams, and his days were given to wicked schemes. Wickedly scheming, he would limp and cackle through the cold corridors of the castle, planning new impossible feats for the suitors of Sarah Linda to perform. He did not wish to give her hand in marriage, since her hand was the only warm hand in the castle. Even the hands of his watch and the hands of all thirteen clocks were frozen. They had all frozen at the same time on a snowy night seven years before, and after that it was always ten minutes to five in the castle. Travelers and mariners would look up at the gloomy castle on the lonely hill and say, Time lies frozen there. It is always then. It's never now. The cold duke was afraid for now, for now has warmth and urgency, and then is dead and buried. Now might bring a certain night of gay and shining courage. But no, the cold duke muttered. The prince will break himself against a new and awful labor, a place too high to reach, a thing too far to find, a burden too heavy to lift. The duke was afraid of now, but he tampered with the clocks to see if they would go, out of a strange perversity, praying that they wouldn't. Tinkers and tinkerers and a few wizards who happened by tried to start the clocks with tools or magic words, or by shaking them and cursing, but nothing word or ticked. The clocks were dead, and in the end, brooding on it, the duke decided he had murdered time, slain it with his sword, and wiped his bloody blade upon its beard and left it lying there, bleeding hours and minutes, its springs uncoiled and sprawling, its pendulum disintegrating. I like that. <laughs> That's the 13 clocks. It's like you it's almost like you have to read it aloud and yeah I, yeah that's those are words that beg to be read together aloud without because it'd be a lot harder to read them yeah i can see why you would need to read it aloud absolutely yeah and it's i mean like th that's literally just like the first couple of pages of the book um and it is um like it like there i think it's like 70 something pages long which is you know which is kind of long for like you know for a children's book that's not like a chapter book but it is so and you, and I I talked about this in in one of our other episodes and um that you know if you know me like you know that I I love children's literature and I enjoy like the simplicity of the storytelling and I'm not going to go into like all of the reasons why I love storytelling, like, listen to our previous episode on, like, classics to, to understand why. Um, but, the, like, getting this book, it, it, it brought me so much joy. And it is literally, like, I, 
I love reading this book aloud more than anything. I'm like, I like basically like if I had the time I and like the hours worked, I would absolutely like volunteer to be like the story lady at the library because I love reading aloud that much. Um, I love telling stories and yes, I love writing stories, but I love telling stories aloud just as much, if not more. And so like, that's why, you know, I, I'm 35 years old and, you know, one of my best friends and I, we have story time because she likes being read too. And I like reading. <laughs> so, um, so what I'm saying is y'all, if y'all want a story read aloud, hit me up on social media and I will absolutely read you a chapter of something <laughs> like this. This is a service I will happily offer for free. Um, but the, like the 13 clocks, it is such, it is just an utterly enjoyable book and it is completely, thoroughly, utterly delightful and like get it, read it aloud and like you won't regret it. It is like I said, it's it is such a fun book. Um and and like as like I said, not that long. It's only like 70 maybe 80 pages. Um so it is it is a short read, but you will you will enjoy every second of it. So, um did you have some honorable mentions, dear? Just one, and it's because I I vacillated between this one and the Dick Van Dyke mm-hmm. uh, one and that's As You Wish by Carrie Elways, the stories from the yes. Seventh Princess Bride. Yes. Um, it's it's another really good just nonfiction. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and thing. it's yeah, it's it's Carrie has always the distinction. Yeah, yeah. has the distinction of being the thing we've met Carrie always for. Yes, but <laughs> um, but yeah, and it's just another really good one. I'm not even going to go into detail because we've talked about the Princess Bride multiple times now, and I've t- yeah. I talked about this book I think on the we did yeah we did talk about episode. it in our, our episode yeah um, but yeah it's a great book um to just read some fun and and it, the nice thing about it is you can just read like a chapter and you've got a good story like you've had a story yeah so. um i did just think of one that i wanted to recommend um mm-hmm. give me one second because i have to pull it up here <laughs> um it's the um it's 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 a uh, it's a it's miranda hart's book Miranda's daily dose of such fun, 365 tasks to make your life more engaging, caring, fun, and jolly. Um, my mom got me this book for Christmas. And so it's each day she has like a different, um, you know, like a different thing like for you to do. And it's, it's like, she is, she is the patron saint of my life. Like, like I worship <laughs> at the altar of, of Miranda Hart. Cause I love her so fucking much. Um, but yeah, like it's, it's kind of, you know, just like an advent calendar of fun. Um, you know, just like some of her suggestions are, you know, like, um, uh, you know, things like, you know, if if you're single on Valentine's Day and you think, you know, as as I once said in my sitcom, you know, like, I hope I hope whoever St. Valentine was, he died single surrounded by couples. Um it's just like if you know if that's how you feel like you know may, maybe do something nice and like get a valentine's day card for somebody just like or you know like you know today like reenact a scene from your favorite musical i recommend dirty dancing um and it's just it's full of absolutely like delightful things like that so it's you know it's not so much like a sit down and read it novel but if if you want you know during these dark times if you want just a little bit of jolly in your life it's a good place to find it so 
Yeah. Um, but yeah, I she's amazing and I love her. Like, fo- like you guys need to follow her on Instagram. Like, she puts like daily videos and stuff, and she's just she's so great. Um, but that that will get it. I just wanted to like quickly like tack on that thing at the end there. Um, so I think that will get it for for this episode of Couch Buddies. Um, unless you have anything else. No, that's it for me. Okay. Go out and read some books, guys. <laughs> yeah, read some books. Like like I've said multiple times before. Go out in like, your backyard and read some books. Let me say it that way. Yeah. <laughs> um Yeah, let us, you know, let us know what you're reading. Let us know if you if you uh tried any of our recommendations. And um yeah, just like hopefully by the time this goes up, we will we will all be free. We will be out of quarantine. And we shall see. Yeah. And hopefully like you and I can very soon like be actually like recording sitting next to each other. Oh, um, I miss you, Kia. I, know, I, I want to touch your face. Uh, <laughs> sorry. I was sorry. That was an inside joke. Um, <laughs> but uh, yes, I, I definitely miss your face. I miss sitting next to you on your, on your couch. Um, your couch is much more comfortable than mine. So um, but yeah, I, I, I I miss I miss Durr and Durr. Like we we need to get yeah. back to that too. Yeah, man, man. I mean, I went from seeing you like twice a week to seeing you none times a week, and it's it at is, least we still talk. We do, yes. And trust me, like give me another day or two, and like I'm gonna be telling you every single plot line from every episode of Shit's Creek because I'm going to rewatch <laughs> it multiple times. So. <laughs> but anyway, like I said, hope hopefully we're all out of this by the time this episode airs. Um, and you know, let 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 us know what you're doing with your newfound freedom if if you have it when when this episode goes out. But um, anyway, that will get it for this episode of Catch Buddies. As always, we thank you so very much for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode of Couch Buddies, why not leave us a rating and review over on iTunes? And while you're at it, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your podcast app so you never miss an episode. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us by searching on social media. We're Couch Buddies Pod on Twitter, on Tumblr at couchbuddies.tumblr.com, and you can email us at couchbuddiespod at gmail.com.